welcome to The Big Deal, where we unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and much more. Subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast player and don't forget to sign up to www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to The Big Deal. I'm Andrew Montessi, joined by AFL legend Warren Treadray. G'day, Treaders. Hey, Monty. How are you today? Good. Thank you, mate. Now we're back with our sports business wrap, as usual, covering the latest big money moves in Australia and around the world. And you can get the notes and key stats from today's chat in our newsletter at www.thebigdeal.au. Now let's jump straight into it, Treaders. Let's continue the chat about the coaches. Obviously, a lot of talk since uh, Hardwick's big move, um, an announcement regarding that he was walking away from the job uh, with the Tigers. Where are we at with everything at the moment, do you think? I think there's a nice old impasse of what's actually going on because, um, and I think so there should be because, you know, Ken Hinckley's going really well at Port Adelaide. Stuart Dews um, looks like their team's hanging in there. What's not known is whether there's another year on a contract or there's a trigger for a clause for that, that second year. But I think the reality is what can happen quickly with you know, the pressure in the West on Adam Simpson, pressure at Carlton again with their poor kicking last week against Sydney, up in Sydney on Michael Voss. What can happen is the media, in a way, can spook clubs into thinking on what they're doing. And, and I don't mind the fact that the clubs are taking the sting out of it at the moment, other than Richmond, whose coach sort of forced their hand. You know, they certainly knew what was going on because they don't agree to this out of nowhere for a premiership coach to walk out on 18 months on a contract. But I think it's a case of take your breath because whether Ken Hinckley wants to stay at Port, whether Port wants Ken Hinckley to stay there, their, their results are heading in the right way compared to where they were early in the season. Gold Coast, there's always going to be pressure on the Gold Coast because the financial model is significantly backed by the AFL. They've got Tasmania, the new licence coming. So I think, you know, unless you're absolutely desperate, you want Damien Hardwick to coach your team, you're not going to be moved anytime soon. I think it just needs to take its course and, and not to be rushed because right now you're in a situation where, um, yeah, if you want to flag your interest in someone like that, yeah, but he hasn't come out and said he's interested in coaching straight away. He's pretty much cited burnout, and that's not going to change after a week. And Treaders, obviously Hardwick talking about burnout and stress of the job. Alastair Clarkson seems to have made a lot of headlines in, in recent weeks. What do you think about that? I think it's real. Um, I think it's real, but to think that AFL coaches are under more pressure than a CEO, I'm not sure that's real. Yeah, I mean, or um, someone's business who's struggling and, and failed in COVID, there's probably worse situations. You know, AFL coaches are pretty well guaranteed an unbelievable salary, but they're under a huge amount of pressure and huge amount of stress. And it is the kind of job that even a CEO can still go shopping at Woolworths or Coles, you know I mean, and do their food shopping. AFL coaches, I guarantee you, probably wouldn't do that because they just, you know, turn into those people that stay out of the limelight. You know, and a lot of public figures are like that. But I think this is all off the back. And there's a, a challenging narrative at the moment for the AFL. And it does make sense why the coaches are annoyed. Right. So if we go back and we look at where things are at pre-COVID, players and coaches, the game 2019, the grand finals won between, you know, from Richmond over GWS, pretty one-sided. Dustin Martin 
wins a, another Norm Smith, I think it's his second, in uh, two grand finals and two premierships. The game's in great space. They're closing in on new TV deals to come out with soon. We've since seen that deal got done. But that was before COVID. So at that stage, um, you look about how much money was spent. Pre-COVID 2019, the footy department spend was $9.7 million. So when I say footy department spend... It's not just your coaches, it's your psychologists, it's your medical departments, it's your fitness departments, um, it's your all your football staff, people who do all the travel and um, you know, pays and bits and pieces, uh, your development coaches, senior coaches, the whole lot. We know that once COVID hit, that got smashed by three million bucks. So it went down to $6.45 million. That is a huge cut. And as we stand right now, it's returned to 695 million dollars per salary cap per club and in 2024 will return to 7.2 but 7.2 is still a long way short of 9.7 million if you look at players as a comparison and only the players play the game without the players the game doesn't happen but this year the salary cap for players is 13.54 million dollars you know they've given an extra 500 grand from the gather round um, success and 250 of that goes into uh, 250 of the 750 uh, so 500 goes to the players, 250 goes back into the uh, footy department spend. But still, um, the players are $14.04 million per year. In COVID, they got hit. Yeah, they dropped 50% of pays for the inactivity in months, which was still about three months. Um, but then they did a deal to pretty much lose 8% of their salary, but got 5% back over future years. So here you are in a situation where players have effectively dropped 3% cash and they've got to wait for... Um, 5%, which they've dropped, they'll get back over future years, whereas the coaches have lost pretty much a third of their spend. So that's a case where a third of coaches' jobs were gone, right? Those that remained were left with, you know, a pay cut, significant pay cut. And then, for example, an assistant coach generally didn't have a development coach underneath them. So they're having to do that role twice as big. So I can understand that the co- the coaches are using this as an opportunity uh to jump on the back of um, Damien Hardwick's stress and, and not being able to cope and had enough of the game because it is real. Like, why should players still be around the same amount of money yet um, coaches are, are still, even as of next year, $2.5 million down in, in people? And, and that's just resources. That's medical departments. That's, as we said before, that, that's development coaches. That's kicking coaches. Yeah, senior coaches copped a massive hit of that. You know, if you're a coach, a senior coach who's on a million dollars a year, and there's a lot of those, you know, and they're going to drop, you know, let's face it, 30% or $3 million around about of their spend, you're effectively losing a fair portion of your money too, 30% of your money. So, um, yeah, I think certainly it's a challenge. It needs to get back to as close to parity as it was before. Was there overspending? Well, there was years ago. That's why they put in this footy department spend cap of $9.7 million. So it didn't become an arms race between the rich clubs and poor clubs. So I think the sooner they get that back, the sooner, you know, you don't want good coaches leaving the game through stress or just had enough. Um, how, how a coach goes from earning a million bucks to now six to $800,000, yeah, that's great money. But sure, senior coaches get paid really well. But when the AFL executives pocketing $11.8 million last year, uh, amongst eight or ten executives, it doesn't sit right and doesn't weigh up for me. No, you're right, and and you know the the line which is is partially true that oh you know coaches get paid good money so you know just deal with it. Well, it doesn't matter how much money you get paid, you can't buy hours in the day. <laughs> yeah, like 
Like, I can't just keep loading these guys up until we're getting paid well. Well, no, they've still got X amount of hours to work each day. They can work all night and, and literally burn out. And I think that is a, a very real risk of what's happening. And as you say, the, uh, the AFL executives are earning much more and, and are generally going to be substantially pretty well resourced with strong teams to support them as well. Yeah, and also, too, the, it's not like the, the players' list got cut. They're still at the same level. So the so less amount of coaches and less amount of resources is expected to service more players. The argument against that is, when I was playing, first started started on Port's inaugural list in end of '96 for the '97 season, we had a senior coach, an assistant coach, a heap of part-time development coach, and a fitness coach. So there were almost, you know, three full-time people. You know, doctors and, and physios were part-time. You know what I mean? So, yes. It has moved a lot, but also, too, the behind the scenes, the sports science, the, the strategies, the analysts, they were never around back day. Then we had one fitness guy, which was a sports science guy, you know what I mean, doing caliper skin fold tests. Now they do body uh, mass index tests. Like It's changed a lot and uh, for it to go bang one way in every area of the game to be cut and resource. And even the AFL, they cut their resources massively, but by all reports, they're back to being fully replenished. Well, why are the coaches the ones that lag behind? Well, we've touched on some of these these contracts and who's earning what. I mean, you're, I know you've got some strong views on contract transparency. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's a case of uh, there's only so much long so much longer that the game can ignore transparency in contracts. It, it works, I think, in the NBA. You know, there, there's a website www.spotrack.com and. Is it Spotrack? Spotrack? I'm not sure how you pronounce that. But uh, I've always gone, I wonder when I'm watching the NBA, what's he earning this year? Oh, he's got a dead cap of $18.4 million. It pretty much has every disclosed contract on there. But imagine we could get to a place where in AFL where every AFL contract is declared, where they spend their fully department um, from high-profile people. You know, what, what, what was, you know, so we look at Geelong and go, well, out of their, you know, there's... 6.95 departments spend footy. Where are they spending that? What's Chris Scott get? What does their recruiting department get? How, where do they spend their resources better? Imagine if we got to a stage where you're going to get total transparency on all that sort of stuff. I think it'll be better. It'll take away the so-called speculative stories. And I know the AFL loves the flood of the news cycle, you know, with speculation and all this sort of stuff. But imagine if we knew that Damien Hardwick had an opt-out clause. That not, I'm not sure that he did but on the six months into his two-year deal last week. Imagine we knew the situation where how um, uh, Alastair Clarkson left Hawthorne and how they'd set that up with Sam Mitchell. You know, that was ugly. Imagine if we knew, you know, what Stuart Dew's contract clause looks at this year, whether there's a bonus or not. You know, I think with transparency and how much players are earning, you know, we're now seeing little bits and pieces of that creep in when the Jack Bowes situation where the Suns trade him out for pick seven, but it's 800 grand or whatever owing his contract because it's backloaded. So then the average footy fan is a lot more educated, a lot more understanding. Um, and it comes to a lot more accountability off the back of that too, because you know at the end of the day, the player stresses because of their form. And if it became public knowledge, yeah, there, there's that mental side of that, but you've got total transparency. Your club actually comes under pressure for doing that deal too. So mm. you know the situation you're in, yeah, we see it in the NBA, you know, blokes you know, opt out, they, they do salary dumps, they do all this sort of stuff. We're getting to a stage now where I think it, it the game needs more transparency and, and in a total different light. Like we, we see 
um, the new Tasmanian team and funding for the start and the AFL get through and was it going to happen? Well, it was always going to happen because there was funding. But then it, straight afterwards, you've got pretty much every sporting club but uh, organisation other than the AFL supporting the government's voice. Um, so I just sit back and for me, I, I just don't like how that sits. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. You know, where's the transparency on all the spending for the taxpayer? You know, it hasn't been really transparent. It's almost like, oh, yeah, well, Tasmania needs a team. And don't get me wrong, I think it's wonderful for Tasmania. But the payoff then, is the payoff uh, a written down payoff or is it a, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, this is what we need to do? I just don't like the fact that we, we're sort of now really blurring the lines. And maybe we've always blurred the lines with all these situations. But if you had total transparency of, you know, why that was done, how that was done, where they think they can help, you know, you know, unemployment in Tasmania or employment on Tasmania or social issues. Um, I think that sort of transparency would be good for everyone because it removes effectively the dodgy deal. You know, it's even with gambling. We look at gambling with off whack gambling and live gambling inside a game. It looks as if, you know, the Liberal government are potentially going to throw that around as a, as a discussion point. But if we knew the deals and how much money was changing hands and how much money was going to be spent and, and then how much money they're making out of this but also spending on prevention, I think we'd be a, a lot smarter and, and that'd take away the rumours and people will have more transparency with the game. And I think that that can only be healthy. You know, why is the fact that the AFL CEO's pay is not known but just the executive? It, it, mm. it just doesn't sit right. Open the books up and I, I think the game will be better for it and no doubt the NBA is because of that. And and you're saying open the books up in every facet of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that would take some full-time reporting. Don't worry. You're worried about not being in the pay cycle. Well, there'd be a football element, a political element. There'd be, is someone effectively trying to buy, buy votes? Well, it, it sort of looks a, a little bit like that on the outside because, you know, there's been a number of football people have spoken out and go, okay, so we've got every supporting, you know, um, club in the world supporting the voice but in every statement i've seen this they don't you know do your own homework do your own thing it's like it just sort of seems weird like just i'd love to keep it separate maybe i'm just off my head that it's never going to be that way because it's never been that way but it just seems more front and center than it ever has before so and if you take it a little bit further um if we're talking about keeping this game away from every sorts of tampering whether it's internally tampering or externally tampering, um, I think the AFL then also needs to follow the NBA's lead with this lottery pick, whereas the situation, instead of being the worst-ranked team, you just don't get the best-ranked player. You know, and, and we saw in the last couple of weeks, the Spurs have won the uh, right, the um, San Antonio Spurs have won the right uh, to that first lottery pick. Or, and it's well known that the, the best player around is this Victor Wembanyama, Wembanyama, Victor. He's about two hundred. Looks like, looks like three hundred kilometers high. He's huge. He's a freak. He, he, they reckon he's as probably as dominant as LeBron James back in the day. But this guy is a lot bigger. He's a center and needs a bit of put a bit of meat on the on the bones. But just a thought for the AFL and how that works. That announcement was massive in itself. I think it would create a similar announcement. The AFL generally likes to follow those you know, uh, mid-season trading periods and drafts and, and tries to hype up the draft like America, but it hasn't been able to because the levels below the under-18s aren't well as known as the college levels in America. But just imagine a situation, instead of the first team in the comp who wins the AFL Premiership gets the worst pick, why don't you pull them into set, set uh, situations? So if you finish between 15th and 18th, instead of getting, um, you know, 
fourth pick, third pick, second pick, first pick, mm -hmm. you guys go into a lottery. So there's four teams in the base lottery. And then there's another lottery between 11 and 14. Then there's a lottery only between two teams, nine and 10. So that effectively separates the teams that finish the top eight to the bottom eight. So there's a significant advantage, right? And then there's a lottery pick between five and eight. And then you can also do a lottery pick between one and four, but I'd suggest even leave it. So if you finish top four, where you finish, you finish accordingly. And you're in a situation where it's a great unknown heading to the draft. As we know, you're trading a future pick. It can be a future lottery pick. So we're not in a situation now. If, if a team's traded away its first round pick, you've got an idea where it's going to hit. Well, if you, you break them up into fours, you're not sure where it's going to hit. So I just think there's that's the next space to look at. And I know it's not immediate for the AFL, but I just think if you you, know, you left the top four alone and then you created four different lottery picks, um, it'd create a little bit more interest in the game, but also take away the issue of anyone, you know, when bottom plays bottom, really tampering, as we saw many years ago. Well, I mean, what is the case against it? Why, why wouldn't they go with a, a lottery process like this? I don't know. I don't know. I can only see upside. Yeah, you protect the team that finishes bottom because they're terrible. But the bottom four teams, generally it's always a bottom two or three. Or you know, It's very rare that one team at the bottom is just horrendous. Normally, um, yeah, well, it might be that this year that, that's, that's West Coast um, because they are really struggling, got heaps of injuries. But why? Because they've gone from, yeah, you know, they won a premiership only a few years ago, 2018, to now totally bottoming out. And now in a situation where the injury list is through the roofs, why should they get the bottom pick? I mean, they're in that situation because they topped up chasing another premiership and it hasn't worked and they've had heaps of injuries. So there's two ways. It can go really well if you like Geelong. You get back to, you know, the last time at the mountain before last season was 2011. But they get it some years later after, I think they missed finals once in that period of time. It was amazing. But, you know, for West Coast, I don't think just because you finish bottom, you should be guaranteed a situation because that just creates uncompetitiveness, playing kids who aren't ready um, and, and and making decisions. Whereas if you finish between 15 and 18, then you've got a little bit of flex to try to win every week. And I'm not saying not everyone does, but you just remove any chance of it being tampered with. Now, things are getting even uglier at Carlton. I mean, you've got the obviously the, the on-field performances, but... But gosh, it's uh, pretty ordinary off the field as well, Treaders. Yeah, and we spoke about Bruce Matheson, who's the pokey baron. He's the big supporter. Um, his nephew has been on the board for 10 years, has now quit the board. There's, there was reports that there was a blow-up in the change rooms after the game between Sydney and Carlton last Friday night. So the Carlton president, Luke Sayers, in the change rooms and Craig Matheson had words. Um, it looks now that Craig Matheson, he stood down midweek. So there's a bit of concerns around list management, spending, player development. Did they pick the right coach? Well, it's nothing worse than when your team's struggling off the, on the on the field. It, it now appears that there's fractures off the field. You know, to, good teams can turn around it on field if everyone is aligned off field. And that is from your president to your footy manager to your CEO to your captain to your coach. If you lose those pillars, then it can fall apart. And it looks like Carlton's is, you know, Michael Voss, I, I thought the Blues had their chances to win that. They kick so poorly. You win that game, it takes the pressure valve off, but all of a sudden you lose the game from poor goal kicking and then you've got a, you know, a bust up between a board member and, a, and the president. It's not a good look for the club and, and it really just shows how, um, they have, how a lack of unity in their club. I mean, you, you've been there you know, in your career where there was off-field 
issues kind of playing out and and you're still trying to play the game. I mean, players will always front up to a press conference and say, ah, we're just focusing on what we're doing and now nah, we're not impacted by that. But but the reality is you would be, right? Oh, yeah. You, you live every moment of it because, you know, it's changed a lot in the last few years. You know, when at the last end of my career, Twitter was taken off. Well, now everything's about, journos are about Twitter. It's about Facebook. It's about Instagram. It's, you know, you know, players are you know, whinging about the media focus, but then you know, the other one's posting the content out there. So um, the the interesting bit for me is you knew you were all right when there weren't any cameras in the change rooms. I just did the press conference and leave. So you know off the back of a good win or a solid footy club that that would disappear more often than not. You know, everyone's going to go through their tough stages, but it's how you, you stick tight in those tough situations that defines um, where you're at. And, and there's no greater example right now my old club, Port Adelaide, I put the heat on them early in the year and they were playing uncompetitive footy. Now they've got back to basics. They've made some changes. They've moved some players in the midfield, albeit one guy, Zach Battles, has been simply amazing. Um, and he's not alone because his movement in the middle has created a, a dynamic for, for Port and all of a sudden they've won now, what, eight in a row and, and playing really competitive football. So you can turn around if you stick back. Now the state of origin is, game one is in Adelaide um, tomorrow night. Now, ticket sales have been a bit flat. I mean, it's, it seems yeah. they've, had a, they've had a crack at everything in South Australia with gather round and all sorts of events. feels like there's just a bit of fatigue. Yeah, probably fatigue. Probably only, you know, we're not far out of a pandemic, are we? So and that decimated the economy and we're in a situation where probably people don't have a huge amount of money to spend. Um, are people travelling from interstate, which is what the, the South Australian Touring Commission and government want to do. Yeah. They want to buy the event so... Western Australians, if they're interested, which is probably not as many as being an AFL state, but Queenslanders, particularly New South Welshmen um, and women, to come and, and just spend money in South Australia and take in the game. I think there's about 41,000 tickets sold. You know, the, the stadium holds 55. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a little bit um, different too because New South Wales plans to wear their Navy jerseys, but the NRL has requested they change back to the original Sky Blue. Now, the Navy's only been worn twice, 2019 and 20, and whether that affects New South Wales fans, that's for them to, to go through. But, you know, it looks like uh, New South Wales looks to have rejected the request. You know, these jerseys have been individually made for each player um, and plans for the jerseys have been in, you know, for well over a year because you can't just go, oh, yeah, we're going to go print a new lot. You know, it, it is normally at best a six-month process or even further out, a 12 to 18 month process. Uh, it's also reported set to generate 2 million in revenue and break sales records for an alternate jumper because as collector fans, they all want to do it. And particularly if you come into the game, most people want to wear it and, and feel like they're one of the players. Um, meanwhile, the NRL was working on a reduced cost for Guernseys, you know, getting them down to 99 bucks. That'll be the lowest since 1994. Yeah, they're normally around $170 per jumper. So, yeah, and this is a trial with classic sportswear. So there you go. This is another deal inside the deal, inside a game that was done as a deal. And two teams that built the suitcases out of each other with hit-ups and, and high tackles and sin bins. You know, we, we've talked a lot, you know, over the journey on the show so far of the, you know, in, the, in recent months, a lot of talk about the jerseys. You know, it, it, it seems like such a simple thing. But my gosh, you know, whether you're at the front of jersey sponsor or it's your brand, as a club, things like this, you know, the sky blue is 
the the New South Wales brand. So that's where the pushback is coming from. So it's just fascinating over just like what what could be if you're not a sports fan and think why what's the big deal about a jersey? Well, it means everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's putting on your body armor for the game, isn't it? Like, well, I go back in. Well, the nearly 12 months we've been doing this podcast, yeah, we've talked about Port Adelaide's um, pylon or prison bar Guernsey against Colin that got to wear that. You know, that, that was the highest selling AFL Guernsey, even though they weren't allowed. Made two million bucks in COVID to help the, kept the coppers going. So um, there's that one. We've talked about technology in Guernsey, so you can't have mm. um, uh, copy Guernseys made. Um, yeah, so th- th- I think it really does identify. You look at NBA finals at the moment, everyone wears their jersey to the field, you know, to the court. It's an association. It's a fan's way of showing their colours, so to speak, and which tribal team they follow. So I've always loved that fact. You know, the only thing before that was the old duffel coat back in the day. Middle of winter, you got the long trench coat, duffel coat with a number on your back, and, you know, you put more emblems and, and, and bits and pieces. So, yeah, that's one thing. I'd look at an AFL land if you wanted to bring back. But I think everyone wants to be associated with their team, win, loss, or draw. Um, those numbers go up and down how well the team's going, but... Um, yeah, it's a massive part and it's a massive generator of money that probably footy clubs didn't understand until now. Now over to basketball, really good news for the NBL. They've jagged Mitsubishi as a major sponsor again for the first time in 23 years. Feels like a bit of a throwback to the NBL's glory days of the 90s and that's a good sign because things were flying back then and they seem to be flying now. Isn't that funny? We had this chat to Grant Kelly, who's the 36ers owner, and um I pitched that same question. Is it back basketball? Is it back to a hype era? And my son doesn't play basketball. My stepson does. But my son wears all the jumpers. And he watches all the NBA finals. And he records them all. But he plays his footy. So I look back now and go, we've got the same amount of hype that it was when the Jordan era was happening. Um, And you go back and it's around that time. Um, Yeah, it's a throwback, as you say, to the glory days. The 90s, um, the NBL's probably been in the best position it's been in a long time. Viewership, you know, stability with ownership. Um, a major car deal is, is what generally where the spending comes from. A lot of the car companies, you know, it's the reason why the AFL has had a huge association with the Toyota Motor Company. Um, it, it's exactly that. Yeah, and the, the big brand association stuff, you get the, you get the follow-on as well. So when a, when a big-name brand like a car brand gets behind a league, all the other sponsors start to take notice and they go, okay, there's there's something in this. If it's good enough for a Toyota, if it's good enough for a Mitsubishi, then it's good enough for us and our brand to get on board as well. So some good stuff uh, ahead for the NBL, I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, stay on basketball. You look at what's happening in the NBA. Um, game seven between the Celtics and Heat is on as we speak. Celtics aiming to be the first team in NBA history to come back from three zip down in the series to qualify for the playoffs. It's now tied at three-piece. So um, that's amazing. But it's, it, what also happened late last week is the Lakers bowed out, as we say, in straight sets in uh, tennis terms. But um, LeBron, straight after the game, hinted at retirement. But it was that what he was trying to achieve? And it's funny because uh, JJ Redick has gone from on the court as an analyst to uh, into the ESPN as an analyst. Um, it, He's saying he's pretty much one of the most calculated athletes in history of professional sports. Now, is he sending a message, LeBron, to administration? Because no one really expects him to retire. So, you know, is it a come and get me and, you know, try and get Kyrie Irving into my team? Or is it saying, hey, I want a new opportunity? 
um, I guess only those from inside the uh, coffers at the uh, Staples Centre would know what he's trying to get at. But it, it quickly did take the focus away from what was a pretty poor performance by the Lakers. And as Reddick said, like he is extremely calculated, LeBron. And you know, if he was legit about retirement, this thing would have been planned out. It would have been monetized to the absolute eyeballs. There's going to be no shock retirement. So I am interested to see. Okay, what's he really getting at here? Like, what is his, what's his point? He's obviously trying to uh, motivate and nudge the Lakers administration some way. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, well, it didn't work uh, in free agency, did it, in their in their period? Because they tried to get um, Irving in and, and Lakers uh, management didn't make the move. And in the end, they went on an unbelievable run and got to the playoffs after looking like they were going to miss out. But also can't forget too with LeBron, his son Bronny's not far away from turning pro. And he's always said he'd love to play with his son or a season with his son. So... Not sure. His son's not going to be getting there any quicker than he could be. Um, but maybe he's he's probably just trying to um, put some pressure on himself to motivate himself to keep going until his son's available to play. Yeah. Now jumping across to soccer, we've been we've we touched on a couple of weeks ago, Ange Postacoglu and his just outrageous success in Scotland. Now we we touched on the fact that he could be sought out for a Premier League gig, and there's growing talk. Uh, over in England that he could be sought out to take over as Tottenham's manager. But does he want the gig? That's the big question. And Ange is as good as anyone as keeping his cards close to his chest. Yeah, I think he's a wonderful media performer, but he can be a grumpy bloke. Nah, not doing that, not doing that. Well, he's done the clean sweep with Celtic again. Um, he's won back-to-back titles. You know, Rangers won the one before with Steven Gerrard. He's done a wonderful job wherever he's gone. He went into the J-League and did really well there. I reckon it was Hiroshima by memory. Um, won the championship there. I think Kevin Muscat has taken over since. Um, so is, is there much more he can do? Or is he just happy being at Celtic and happy earning his, his one and a half million pounds or euros or whatever he's got there? So no doubt if he wanted to go to a big club. And he's been, he's been mentioned with all bottom 10, bottom 15 clubs in the English Premier League. But for him to leave a club like Celtic, which is really financial, massive following, backing, he wants to go to somewhere where he's got the backing and financial clout to make change. Because in that market, you know, these sort of, them and Rangers control that Scottish market. But if, if you look at uh, where the Premier League teams sit, unless you're in the top three or four, you're no chance of winning. So a move for Tottenham has been a serious a serious underachiever over the journey, says an Arsenal fan, hand on heart, I'll put that out there. But that, they haven't won anything, got to a Champions League final a while back under Mauricio Pochettino, who he's now headed to Chelsea after agreeing a three-year deal to become their head coach. So he was at PSG not long ago, a bit of gardening leave that happens in soccer. But Tottenham need to land someone who they think is going to revolutionise their club. They haven't, as you said, any silverware um, in the last decade, lots of manager turnover. The last time they were any good in that situation was under Pochettino. Um, and the reality is th- they need to start performing. Interestingly, though, they do have an Aussie as their chief football officer, Scott Munn. He was CEO of Melbourne City for 10 years before taking over City's China operations. I mean, who knows if there's a relationship there and an Aussie connection, but 
you know, it doesn't doesn't seem like Ange would be jumping at this opportunity. No, unless unless you know money talks. You know, David Levy, who is the chairman there, um, there's some billionaire owners as well. They, they need to get their house in order. And the other thing too, Harry Kane, their, their star player, captain, and striker. He's always rumoured to be moving on, and now is the stage. If you are Tottenham, he's either got to, you've got to try and stick him and keep him there, which they've done very well over the last few years, and put some money and resources around him, or cash in and start again. So, um, and if that's the case, and you're going to lose a 25 goal forward striker every you know, to start your season, well, it's going to be some heavy lifting, and I'm not sure Tottenham, like the top clubs, are patient enough for that to happen. Now, speaking of the Premier League, there's just been so much going on over the last few days. We've had the richest game in football, Treaders. Well, Luton Town is the, uh, has won the richest game in footy, earning Premier League promotion and the US $200 million that goes with it. Well, nine years ago, this club was in the fifth tier of English footy. On the weekend, it won promotion to the richest league in the game by beating Coventry City in a penalty shootout. This is an amazing story. A 138-year-old club bought for $7 back in 2003. Those owners only lasted a couple of months, though. What did they do? Put a sandwich and traded it back. Unbelievable. Yeah, Their stadium was built in 1905. And to get some pictures of this, this stadium is sandwiched among houses and only holds a bit over 10,000 fans. There's no celebrity owner here. They only spent nine million US on wages. Watford, who's also in the championship, spent thirty-three mil. So this is a massive leg up. The the thing is now they're two hundred million dollar windfall, which could double if they stay in the Premier League for at least a couple of years. Comes mostly from media rights money, as we know, but they need to spend it because if their on-field team doesn't represent a Premier League team, it's not going to matter. But their other challenge they face too is Luton Town would instantly triple those attendances. But when you've only got a starting the whole 10,000, you've got a bit of an issue there. On the downside, Leicester City won the championship a few years ago, right? This is Socceroo Harry Suta plays there at the moment. They got relegated despite a win over West Ham. You know, so his Premier League dreams come crashing down. Back to the championship just five, five months after making the move to the Premier League. Now, as we said, City won the championship just seven years ago. And this is, when I say the championship, the Premier League championship, they were the one bolter out of the blue that's not Man City, Man United, Arsenal, the, the, you know, all the big clubs, Chelsea. Leeds has also got relegated and Everton avoided relegation with a 1-0 win over Bournemouth. Also seen situations where Crystal Palace um, was facing potentially the drop. They didn't win a game out of the last 12, but won 12 draws and survived. So it just tells you how much money this is. You know, and we're talking about Premier League clubs um, with more than 2.5 billion in prize money, and that's pounds, 2.5 billion pounds in prize money, and broadcast revenues being split up amongst the 20 clubs. So when you sit back and look about how much money these teams are making, the mirror in the UK is calculated, you know, just some estimates, right? So people have got an understanding. Biggest losers have been Chelsea and Liverpool because they fall out of the Champions League spots. So this is the Europe. So the top six can go to Europe. Top four is Champions League. Um, but... And participation in this competition could be worth an additional $100 million. So my team, Arsenal, right, who haven't played in the Champions League for a number of years now, Manchester City has got $170 million in prize money. Arsenal second, $167.8 million. Manchester United, $165. And Newcastle, who haven't been seen in the Champions League for years and also spent time in the First Division, $163.4 million. Then it goes to 
um, Liverpool, then Brighton, who's a team, a bolter from the blue, Aston Villa, Tottenham, and that's where Tottenham is, you know, eighth on the, on the finances. So even Southampton, who finishes bottom and gets relegated, got 128.2 million pounds. So that just tells you what it's worth. Somehow get there, and if you like Luton Town, and you were what? Sold for seven bucks back in 2003. <laughs> if only you were still the owner. You can sell it. Hey, we got two hundred million dollars. Our business is worth a fortune now. Yeah, it's wild. And, and as you said, the uh, I don't think many people would be aware that you you get in the Champions League, and that's an extra hundred million pounds or thereabouts yeah, to go with the two hundred. Um, already got extra broadcast dollars. Yeah. So, man, that's huge. And speaking of big money, I mean, if we jumping across to a completely different sport in the IPL, but uh, just not long ago, actually, the Chennai Super Kings won their fifth title by five wickets. Absolute nail biter, last ball finish. It ended at 1.30 in the morning. Um, Judea got the 10 runs needed off the last two balls, six and a four. For Chennai, it's a 3.6, uh, $3.56 million payday for, for winning. The rain delays didn't impact viewership, though, Treaders. What, what were some of the numbers that, um, in terms of viewership? Indian streaming app, which is Geo Cinema, broke the record, right? The global record for the most concurrent views on a live stream event, eclipsing a long-standing milestone by Disney's Hotstar. The streamed event attracted over 32 million concurrent viewers. Man, that's a lot of devices. 32 million. Yeah, and, and how when, many heads of when a game's finishing at one when a game's finishing at 1:30 in the morning yeah, as well. And, and let's be honest, they're really just one person sitting there watching it in bed. There's multiple people peeking over each other's shoulders to watch that. So probably look at 100 million people watching that as we speak. So it's 16 years in the IPL, and God, that's gone quick. And it's only getting bigger. They smash viewership records with eight games to go. Indian pay TV network Disney Star has revealed that the 2023 Indian Premier League is officially the most watched edition ever with broadcasts over the first 66 matches reaching 482 million viewers. Now, viewership total with eight matches still to be played is 4 million more than the previous high of 478 million. So, you know, that was set in the course of 2019. They did those calculations, obviously. Um, with a few games with, to go. Yeah, with a few games to go. So the fact that they, they cracked that total... You know, once they do the total calculations, it'll be interesting to see, and we'll probably be able to bring it to you uh, next episode next week and get a bit of a debrief as to all the numbers because, you know, that competition continues to go from strength to strength. And we've been talking about the, you know, the broadcast dollars and the Indian opportunity that continues to to increase over there. So, yeah, it's looking good. Yeah, and, and just take it back to something a bit local. I know when my time at the Nine Network went to the cricket, and rained out days would effectively cost between eight and ten, 10 million in advertising paybacks to to um, some of the sponsors. So that says to me that because it's twenty twenty and they do play in a little bit of rain and you know rain they'll delay the drizzle they'll play out and that's the beauty of twenty twenty. It doesn't get stopped by the elements as much as a Test cricket would because every rained out day is significant coffers. You know it's in the eights to ten million dollars in adbacks that the networks one can't broadcast viewership then have to add back to sponsors. But that, that's a massive win for uh, IPL. And that's where if you play in those borderline conditions and, and play the game out, which all the players understand, then 
everyone still gets paid. Now, speaking of cash and rain, what's happened with the uh, F1s, Treaders? Well, it was a crazy wet Monaco Grand Prix, which we always get once again. Who won? Max Verstappen. Aussie Oscar Piastri also picked up some points for just the second time in his first year in his F1 career. Aussie Jack Doohan, who was involved in a fiery crash in the F2s, the marshals putting out the fire uh, and was almost hit in the process. Well, there was lots of chaos too. But as we know, the lavish wealth of Monaco is almost as big, if not potentially bigger than the race. You know, you, if you've got a super yacht, Monty, and I know you've got three of them, all 760 berths of books months in advance, they cost up to US $110,000 for a spot. One of the biggest yachts is Cloud9, owned by Aussie billionaire Brett Blundy. He bought it for a lazy $150 million last year. 290 feet, has a beach club, a pool, a theatre on board. Unbelievable. We'll put a, a bit of a pick-up in the newsletter too for you to check this one out. Meanwhile, Honda is back in the F1s after doing a deal to supply engines to Aston Martin, which means that Aston Martin can break away from rival Mercedes, who is currently its engine supplier. And those engines are going pretty well with Fernando Alonso going pretty well. But also saw a situation too, where I think um, uh, Conor McGregor uh, had a Lamborghini super yacht. It's just only sleeps two people, hundred foot, unbelievable. It, it is the spot, is the star-studded spot. It is if you could get that amazing spot, then you can sit off the back of your super yacht and just watch the race as they fly by. It's it's just the ultimate uh, icon of wealth when you've got a super yacht. So, um, traders, I know you've been making big bucks off the podcast. So I'm uh, yeah, look, <laughs> looking forward to when I come back to Adelaide, just maybe dropping a fishing line off your super yacht. Uh, Mate, maybe. we could make a Is there room for yacht. one in West Lakes? There is a lot of engines in West Lakes, but we could do a paper yacht. It'd probably sink after the water broke. <laughs> but we'd have to. <laughs> that's as good as we're going, but that's all good. Yeah. Now, um, the tennis is getting political. And I know you and I, we kind of we get a little bit annoyed when sport gets political. You know, that's probably our, our thing. So. At the French Open, Novak Djokovic, he's got political after his straight sets first round victory today. He wrote a little note on the TV camera lens. Kosovo is the heart of Serbia. Stop violence. Um, so he's written that on there. Again, I'm not even going to pretend to know all the details of what's going on politically and things like that. But obviously there's Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in 2008 and things are quite tense at the moment. But it's, it wasn't the only political athlete-driven move, Treaders? No, it's not. It's just as tense amongst the women. Um, Belarusian tennis player Arena Sabalenka um, comfortably accounted for Ukrainian Martha Kostyuk. And because Belarus is an ally of Russia, Kostyuk refused to shake hands with Sabalenka in a protest over the war. Um, the act wasn't popular with the crowd. Clearly, we've got an issue with the AFL about booing, but this one probably justified on booing because it doesn't go into sportsmanship. Um, but I want to see people react to it in 10 years when this war is over, she said. I think they will not feel really nice about what they did. Um, I didn't expect it. People should be honestly embarrassed. But in better news, the Nasi Kokonakis made it through to the second round for the first time since 2015. I'd love to say for uh, politics to stay out of sport, but it looks like I'm the only one. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's impossible to keep it completely out, but you can understand why the crowd just wants to 
escape and watch tennis and then these issues get brought into the arena yeah. and yeah. clearly and also they just get I think there's a, there's a very big difference between whether governments are manipulating sporting organisations for their own outcomes or in this case there's genuine wars and yeah. political issues that are affecting people's lives daily. So uh, you, you can also under, understand the elements of it all as well. But uh, on another matter, it looks like Oakland's finally announced, Monty, they've got this stadium deal. Yeah, so they recently did a uh, joint announcement with uh, the Nevada legislators. So the team's aiming to move to the Vegas Strip um, into a publicly owned 30,000 capacity stadium with a retractable roof. The venue is going to cost a lazy US $1.5 billion and will create 14,000 construction jobs. So there's, you know, Nevada is uh, very aggressive in doing whatever they can to attract business over there. I mean, the state and county is expected to contribute US 325 million in total plus tax breaks. Now, Tread is a tax break that they're offering is a, a, a 30 year tax break, which could save the A's US 55 mil. So you don't have to pay your taxes for three decades. It's not too bad. And good luck to the poor fans who are based in Oakland who have supported their club for years. <laughs> this is the bit that I struggle with the US model. Yeah, I, I get why they do it. It's a business, it's money. But what about all your diehard fans who've supported them for, you know, growing up being an Ace fan? All of a sudden now they're uh, they're going to be based somewhere else and you're going to be able to go to games. Yeah. Now, <laughs> this one. Here's your quirky you one, isn't it? You always find a quirky one. <laughs> always find a quirky one. But NBA referee Eric Lewis is being investigated for having a burner account on Twitter. Now, for those who don't know what a burner account is, Treaders, can you explain? Well, a burner account is an account that doesn't identify you. So a lot of there are some people in the media who have been accused of it in the AFL world of having their name as an account and then a separate burner account. So when you have a separate burner account, you can act any way you want and not really be accountable to your own name, use, like, or reputation. Is that a good example? Yes. Yes, very good. How many, how many AFL players do you reckon would have little burner accounts? Oh, I wouldn't think that many. There's rumours around that some journalists have got them, as I just touched on, but um, I, just, I just don't think you, if you did, you got too much time on your hands as an AFL player. Yeah. Um, because I just don't see the point in it, you know, unless you like really fighting with people um, and arguing and trolling people online. Uh, if you're really into that, you could probably do it from your own own account and you'd be quite, yeah. you'd, you'd get a, probably a lot more followers that way. So Eric Lewis is under the pump, as I said, you know, that I don't think it's been made official that it definitely is his account, but I'll put the handle in the newsletter at Cutliff Blair is his username, Blair Cutliff. <laughs> I love the names that these burner, when they create a burner, I just, yeah, Blair Cutliff. Yep, no worries. And yeah. uh, there's been a lot of interesting tweets from that account, defending Lewis and other so NBA. He's so he's defending, he's defending his own himself. decisions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I even had a look this morning. I thought he might have um, deactivated the account once it started making news, but like when I last checked, the account was still there and I was looking through it, all of his tweets. All of them were referee-related and yeah, very specific. Is- so this is very much like a lot of sports. You, you know, the, the referees aren't allowed to get involved in this public stouch, are they, with people? No. Um, like players aren't allowed to criticise referees or decision-making in the AFL or NRL or whatever, whatever league. So he's thought he's gone 
yeah, allegedly gone rogue to defend himself because he probably feels like he's not being defended enough. Yeah. And it's not the first time he's copped it on Twitter. There was an old photo of him and his family that that popped up of them all wearing Boston Celtics gear. <laughs> and then um, and then some people uh, cross-checked uh, how Boston performed whenever Eric Lewis was referee and, and their numbers are great. <laughs> Oh, wow. The referees really look after them. So, um, yeah, for any any budding referees or or young fans who want to maybe make it in professional sport, a bit of advice: don't shit can anyone, because in today's modern Google search engines and photo IDs and um, data um, on social media devices, you will not escape it. They will find you wearing that Port Adelaide jumper, sledging the Crows, and then 15 years later, you get drafted by the Crows and said, I never went for Port. Yes, we will find you. That's how it works. Yeah, exactly. Now, thank you, Treaders. Another another great wrap covering a whole heap of stuff. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Remember, you can get the notes from today's chat in our newsletter. Just visit www.thebigdeal.au and don't forget to tap that button and subscribe to The Big Deal on your favourite podcast player. We'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Big Deal. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens, and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.